Well, uh, hello. It's been a little while. Uh, my name is Dom. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here at SWEC, and I'm normally at Bankstown, uh, but it's a fantastic um, uh, privilege to be back here and to be opening God's Word with you. Um, it's a somber Bible reading, isn't it? And we'll get into that part of the story in a bit. Um, but as we begin, I wanted us to meet Miss Sorokin. Yeah, Miss Sorokin. Um, this 31-year-old has a roller coaster of a story. Uh, between the years of 2013 to 2017, uh, she managed to pull one over uh, on major financial institutions, banks, lawyers, hotels, New York social elite and friends, impersonating an heiress with enormous wealth in a trust fund that she said that she could not access. Um, just to highlight a few things that she managed in that short span of a few years, uh, she pulled one over on a bank that gave her an overdraft for $100,000 based on fake financial documents. She pulled one over on a Manhattan hotel. Uh, she ate and drank so lavishly, we're told, uh, while giving $100 tips to staff that she racked up a $30,000 bill in less than a month staying there. She pulled one over on a private charter company, airline company, and, 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 and built a bill of $40,000 from flights all over the country on, on business class, of course. Uh, in a few days in a luxury hotel in Morocco, she uh, racked up a bill of $62,000. She then pulled one over on a friend, convincing her to pay the bill, and what, which was more than a year's salary for this friend. Now, there's far more to the story, but after arrest and indictment, Miss Sorokin was eventually sentenced to up to 12 years in state prison, heavily fined, and forced to pay her debts. Now, in order to receive the capital that she needed, she sold the rights to her story to Netflix, which created a nine-episode series called Inventing Anna, if you hadn't guessed up to now, which topped the charts for the streaming service earlier this year. Now, this is an incredible drama. It's not hard to see why Netflix would want to turn it into a TV series, yeah? Now, I bring this story of Miss Sorokin up to raise a question for us here this morning. And the question is this. Um, is it possible to pull one over on God? Is it possible to pull one over on God? Now, I think most of us would be very quick to answer saying, Dom, of course you can't pull one over on God. He's God, duh. Of course you can't. And while I agree, in our passage, uh, we still see people trying. We've got a fair bit of ground to cover, so keep your Bibles open. We'll have chapter 10 right to um, partway through chapter 12. But I've got three simple points for us in our outlines, yeah? First point, Israel. Second point, Jephthah. Third point, us, yeah? First point, Israel. Second point, Jephthah. Third point, us. Um, forgive me, by the way, my voice is a little scratchy and, and, and a bit down, so um, bear with that is, is all I'm saying. So pl please pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we know that your word has power to comfort the afflicted, but it also has power to afflict the comfortable. And so we ask that you might be speaking clearly to us in order that our lives might be more aligned with your purpose and will than when we first walked in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead. Um, yep, in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Now, if you've been with us in this series through the book of Judges, this will be a pretty familiar beginning. Hey, 
Again, we read the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Only things have now gotten worse. The spiral continues downward. Did you notice how many gods they worship? It's about every god under the sun. Seven gods of seven nations. At seven, a number symbolizing completeness. In short, what's Israel doing? They have now completely abandoned God and his ways. Right, we're told that they forsook the Lord. They no longer served him. They want, in other words, nothing to do with him. And in response, just as God has done previously, he gives them over to the very nations whose gods they worship. Right? And the oppression in the giving over is severe. They are, verse 8, we read, shattered and crushed by the Ammonites and Philistines. For 18 years they suffer. The oppression is on both sides of the Jordan River for the pseudo-tribe of Gilead on the east side and also on the west side for the, against the formal tribes, including Ephraim. Now, that's an important detail uh, for the end of our story. Now, Israel, we read, is in great distress. They're again in desperate need, and so they do as they have done. They cry out to the Lord, only this time, for the first time in the book, God actually calls them out about their deceitfulness. Have a look from verse 10. Verse 10. Um, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. And the Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Mayonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. You hear what God's saying? He's saying to them, stop trying to pull one over on me. I'm not your on-call, get-out-of-jail card. I've delivered you plenty before, even from these exact groups of people, the Ammonites and the Philistines, and yet here you are again. You've forsaken me. You pray to every God under the sun. You desire what they promise to offer for you. And yet you return when you're in trouble? If you're so devoted to these gods, crawl to them for help, he's saying. Now, this isn't God being petty. This isn't God being trivial. He's not sweating the small stuff here. Right? This is God seeing into the depths of their hearts. He sees that they simply want to use him and abuse their privilege as God's people. See, even when, when Israel actually seems contrite, right, and, they are, and they say to God, do with us whatever you think is best, we'll even get rid of our foreign gods among them, which they've never done in the book of Judges up till now. God doesn't immediately raise up a judge as he has done. See, what's God's response? We're simply told at the end of verse 16. Have a look, verse 16 that he could bear Israel's misery no longer. He could bear Israel's misery no longer. And that's not exactly an enthusiastic response. How are we to read this? Well, just as a kind-hearted person might sometimes take a step forward to someone who habitually hurts them if they take a significant step forward in improving, well, God in his kindness still takes a step towards them, towards Israel. But God's not moved by their repentance. He's not moved by their actions. After all, again, he knows their hearts. He knows that Israel is just trying to push the right buttons to get him to exert his power of deliverance for them. He knows that they are sorry only because of the consequences that they find themselves in. 
He knows that when it comes to our next judge, Samson, and not to give away too much for next week, but they will desire peace so much that they'll even turn Samson, God's appointed judge, over to their captors just to keep the peace that they already enjoy without God. See, Israel doesn't want God. They just want peace and the privileges that come with peace. See, when they say in verse 15, uh, what they say in verse 15, rather, kind of hints at it. They say, we have sinned to God. Do with us whatever you think is best, and this is key, but please rescue us now. God knows Israel is trying to pull one over on him. And yet, even in their impure motives, God's kindness cannot bear their misery any longer. And with the Ammonite forces now camping in Gilead in verse 17, it's no accident that at this point, Jephthah is introduced into our story, which leads us to our second point, Jephthah. Yeah? So we'll pick it up from chapter 11, where we find out more about Jephthah's background. Jephthah, we see, the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute, Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. See, who was Jephthah? Jephthah, we see, is a fighter. Not by choice, but by necessity. His father, who bears the same name as the region they live in, Gilead, meant that he was probably a man of importance. Yeah, but Jephthah didn't benefit from the privileges of being the son of someone of importance because as soon as his half-brothers were smart enough to work out they had an inheritance, Jephthah, the son of a prostitute, is driven out and he settles in a place called Tob. Now, Jephthah is the type of man who learned to become strong. And it helped him that God gave him some leadership gifts because he became a gang leader. Now, scoundrels, we read, gather around him and follow him, his Tob mob, if you will. Uh, But Jephthah, unwanted by his family and people, because of the CV that he's got and the war that's about to break, he's suddenly a man in demand. So much so that the elders of Gilead, they actually go and seek him out. They bring him back to Gilead in verse 5, and they say to him in verse 6, Come, be our commander, so we can fight the Ammonites. Now, what are they saying? Come and be our king. Come and be our head honcho, lead us to defeat Ammon, and all of Gilead will make you king. Now you've got to realize that's, that's a pretty good deal for this former outcast, right? Jephthah's got the know-how, he's got an army. If he can beat the Ammonites, he is now promised the status, privileges, and power of king. I'm sure it'd be particularly enticing to rule over those half-brothers who kicked him out of home. And so we have to see that he really, really wants this. But Jephthah is cluey. He doesn't want to be used and just tossed out again. And so he uses his sharp mind and tongue to get those terms signed on paper. Verse 7, we read, Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead said, replied, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went to the elders of Gilead and people made him head and commander over them and repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. 
Now, as a quick aside, yeah, uh, did you notice that Jephthah responds to the Israelites in chapter 11, kind of how God responds to the Israelites in chapter 10? In chapter 10, Israel rejects God. In chapter 11, uh, the Gileadites reject Jephthah. In a time of desperation, chapter 10, Israel cries out to God. Just like in chapter 11, the elders cry out to Jephthah. And just like in chapter 10, how God pushes back on Israel, so Jephthah here, in what we've just read, pushes back on the elders. See, what is this parallel meant to show us? It, meant to show, it shows us that Jephthah really is God's judge, for one. Right? That he responds, as God does, for the most part, God really has raised Jephthah to be his judge, even if it hasn't been super clear up till now. But second, it also shows us that Israel really was, in chapter 10, they were really bargaining with God. Right? They were really dangling their prayers and offers of repentance in chapter 10, the way that the elders now to Jephthah are dangling this opportunity for power to him. Right? It's basically a bargaining chip. And so to summarize where we are, right? Jephthah is promised with God now as his witness that if he can get the job done, he will be king. That's what is on offer for him. And that becomes his goal in life. Now, surprisingly, Jephthah takes a peaceful diplomatic route to begin with. Um, he again uses his sharp mind. He sends a message to the Ammonite king. We won't delve too deeply into the details, but he gives three arguments, basically. The first argument is he gives a, is a historical argument. That's right? verses 12 to 20. Uh, that the land that um, the Ammonites now want, it wasn't really theirs to begin with. It was the, it was the Amorites, not the Ammonites, close, but no cigar. Right? They had their history wrong. You can't take back land that was never yours to begin with. That's the historical argument. Then, from verses 21 to 24, he gives a theological argument. Right? He, he goes, if Chemosh, uh, your Ammonite god, were to give you land, would you not take it? No, he's saying to the, to the king, that's, just, that's all we've done. Right? Our God has given us this land. Of course we're going to take it. Now, for some of you here listening, this argument kind of starts to raise some alarm bells, doesn't it? See, does Jephthah, God's judge, really believe in Chemosh? Or is this just a tactic in his argument? We'll come back to that. That's why there's an asterisk there. And then the third thing he says from verses 25 to 26 is he gives an argument of precedence. Yeah, he says, we've been in this land for 300 years. If it was such a big deal, why'd you wait this long to come and attack us? It shouldn't be a big deal. This shouldn't happen. And so he concludes in verse 27, I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide to dispute this tape between the Israelites and the Ammonites. Uh, and what does the king of Ammon do? Verse 28, well, he basically scene zones his message. And that's it. And so we've got the scene now set. Right? Jephthah has been promised kingship. He's tried the diplomacy route. No good. And, and now this warrior, probably this Dwayne Johnson-like figure, um, does what the elders of Gilead recruited him to do, to defeat the Ammonites with his might and his strength. Uh, what's more, verse 29, have a look, we read that the Spirit of the Lord comes on Jephthah on his way to battle. Right? Now there is no question that this is truly God's chosen leader. If you look back into the book of Judges, every time the Spirit comes on God's judge, what happens? Victory is certain. Right? When the Spirit of the Lord comes on Othniel, he wipes out the king of Aram. When the Spirit comes on Gideon, the smallest of armies makes the mighty Midian army flee for the hills. And so when we read that the Spirit is now on Jephthah, when we see this, we're supposed to understand, hey, there is only now one outcome for this battle. It's guaranteed. And so victory is secure. But 
Jephthah again uses his sharp mind that has worked so well for him up till now, and now he speaks with God. And we get to the part that Wendy read out for us, verse 30. Have a look, verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. What a terribly foolish thing to say. Uh, There's an app called um, Grammarly. I don't know if you've heard of it. Who's heard of Grammarly? There's ads everywhere. Grammarly. Uh, 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 They scan through writing, right? And they recommend clearer ways to write. It's a pretty cool app. It can even analyze your writing tone and make make changes and recommend changes if you want a slightly different tone. Um, One of its features of Grammarly is to highlight and remove redundant words uh, to make sentences more concise. So rather than um, the lost phone is blue in color, um, it would would underline certain bits and then it would recommend that you should just write the lost phone is blue. Stuff like that. Um, Jephthah would have benefited from Grammarly. His vow is utterly redundant, isn't it? I mean, who did Jephthah actually think would come out to meet him after winning this battle? Animals weren't pets in those days. They're not coming out to meet you. Jephthah must have had in mind a human. Why is God's judge prepared to sacrifice a human to God? Very strange. And so at this point in the story, the battle really is an afterthought. Hey, in fact, that's pretty much what the writer does. He brushes through the battle as quickly as he can. Verse 32 to 33, uh, the writer writes, that then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aroah to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel-Kerimim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. That's it. That's the battle. That's everything we've been up to. The battle is just two sentences. Because he's victorious. Of course he is. He's got the spirit. All the attention is now on who will come out to meet him when he returns home. Verse 34. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. Who should come out to meet him other than his daughter, his only child? And in case we missed it, it's repeated. Except for her, he had neither son or daughter. We don't learn her name, but she is overjoyed. She's dancing with instruments and she's celebrating her dad's victory like Miriam does when Israel crossed the Red Sea. She has no idea what's happened behind the scenes. This is the worst possible scenario for Jephthah, to sacrifice his only child. That's horrific. And so how does he respond? Surely Jephthah retracts his vow, or surely he finds some other way to, to go about it. Verse 35, what, is, what does he do? When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Now he's devastated, but notice whose fault is it? It's not his. It's hers. She's brought him down. And he won't retract his vow to God. 
And so she responds, verse 36, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request. Give me two months to roam the hills, to weep with my friends, because I'll never marry. And so he says, you may go. Um, he let her go for two months. She and her friends went to the hills and wept. After two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. He did to her as he had vowed. Now we've got to ask some questions, don't we? Why does he feel the need to make a vow to God to guarantee victory? And why does he feel so compelled when he sees his daughter as the one coming out of the home, so compelled to keep that vow? Why would he so foolishly commit and actually follow through on something like this? Here's our answer. Because Jephthah, because Jephthah, just like Israel, is trying to pull one over on God. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to pull one over on God. You see what's going on? Jephthah, he's under huge pressure. Everything he's ever wanted is before him, which means that everything, um, uh, everything to lose is there before him should he fail. And so the vow is a bribe to guarantee that he gets what he wants from God. That's why his argument about the Ammonite god Chemosh from his message to the king is so enlightening. Because Chemosh liked and wanted humans at the stake as an offering to him. And Jephthah likely felt that, hey, well, if Chemosh is like that, surely God would also appreciate this grand gesture, a burnt offering of a human, even if it's his daughter, in return for victory. In other words, Jephthah knew so little about God that he believed that God was just like any other. That you relate to God the way that every other culture relates to their gods. That you must give them something they want to get what you want. Never mind that you read, you read elsewhere from places like Deuteronomy 12 that God sees burning children as sacrifices as detestable. He hates it. It doesn't get much stronger. But Jephthah believes otherwise. He wanted the power of a king so badly that he would see his only child as a sad but necessary part of getting there. It's pretty messed up. But the reason for why all that takes place is because he's trying to pull one over on God. And that's not even our ending, right? As we move into chapter 12, and I really speed through chapter 12, they tried Ephraim, remember? They're on the other side of the river. They take offense that they're not invited to the party to beat the Ammonites. Um, if you remember, um, uh, uh, again, um, they, this was their enemy, right? And so um, what the Ephraimites do is that they hurl insults and racial slurs and threats at Jephthah and the Gileadites, which really just escalates into a civil war. Um, um, the Ephraimite survivors from the battle, because they lose the battle, um, who try to cross that river again to get home, uh, when they get to, get to the ford of the river, they're met by Jephthah's men, who were actually pronounced, they, they, they said to them, hey, pronounce the word Shibboleth. Uh, because apparently the, their accent as Ephraimites meant that they couldn't. It's the equivalent of asking a um, Kiwi to say fish and chips. Uh, and if they were to say fish and chops, which of course they will, then a sword would be run through them. Right? Now, at the end of the day, that's the end of chapter 12. That's the end of the, that's the, end of the story, really. What did Jephthah achieve in his time in power? What did this judge do with that authority that he craved so much? Well, we see at the end of his account, chapter 12, verse 
uh, was it chapter 12, verse 6, I think, 7, um, that he reigned for only six years. Not long. He executed a civil war that killed 42,000 Israelites rather than their enemies. And he died shortly after. With no daughter, Israel with no peace, and the downward spiral continues. So as we turn to our third point, us, how should this part of God's word bear weight for us today? Well, I want to suggest that the story of Israel and Jephthah should serve really as a parable of warning to us. Yeah, a parable of warning. That as we see Israel and Jephthah and the way that they try to pull one over on God, rather than ridicule them, we should see their attitudes as mirrors into our own souls. Now, pulling one over on God can sometimes seem trivial. Like I remember um, in year six, I remember it quite vividly actually, praying to God before going into the selective school exam um, that I would get serious about him if I, if I got into a selective school. Such a good Asian kid. Um, it can be trivial. But it can also be about what we value most, can't it? Maybe you resonate with Israel's desire. Right? You want a life of peace. Without conflict, you want it to be a life of ease. A life that is smooth sailing, that has enough room in the margins for maybe a good home and, and, and great holidays and experiences on the side. Perhaps your faith can be described as an appreciation of spiritual things with the perks of happiness and contentment along the way. Or perhaps you resonate with Jephthah's desire to have influence, authority, power, recognition, and status. A life where you are looked up to and well-respected by those you want to respect you. A life where you've just assumed that there will need to be sacrifices made along the way to get there. Perhaps your faith can be described primarily as a resource that empowers you to achieve this goal. Maybe pursuing those things is why you're working so hard. Maybe pursuing these things is why you're studying what you're studying. Maybe pursuing these things is what you find yourself in your spare time dreaming and planning for in order to gain that life. And where it becomes problematic, because it isn't really problematic up to now, but where it does become problematic is we want that peace or an ease or that power and recognition or whatever it is so much that we actually warp our view of God that he becomes, before anything else, the means to meet those ends. Friends, do you treat God kind of how we might treat an employer? Where we relate with him and get busy doing church and Christian stuff only because of what they can provide. And for whatever reason, if that, that, boss doesn't, that employer doesn't follow through, we just bail on them and just move on. Or to ask it another way, if, could, if I could offer you the opportunity yeah, to enjoy the world where you would never die, you could enjoy all that is in our world and none of its pain, you could ride this merry-go-round over and over again, but without God, would you take it? Because if we treat God like some employer, or if we want the joys of the king without the king himself, then chances are we are probably pulling one over on him, aren't we? It's more subtle, maybe. But nevertheless, that's what we're doing. 
And if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, we devote so much time in life doing exactly that. We relate to God like this much more than we care to admit. And in doing so, we might deceive ourselves. But God is not deceived. God is the heart knower. He knows exactly what we're doing. And if I can be even more direct, when we read a story like Jephthah here, we can look at it and go, man, that's, that's so messed up. But really, from God's point of view, our versions of pulling one over him are actually far worse. Why? Well, let me illustrate. Imagine if someone offered you to crash their place for a night. Right? And while you're there, you, you kind of trick them into staying an extra night or two. And that's not a great thing to do. I don't condone doing that. But at the same time, it's kind of not the worst thing in the world. Now, if, imagine if someone offers you a brand new house. And while you're getting the keys to this house, you try and hack into their bank account to wire you a deposit to buy another place. Now, pulling one over on the greater kindness is far worse, isn't it? And when we look at where we stand on this side of the cross, have we not received a far, far greater kindness from God to us? We've received a far greater king. We've received a far greater salvation in the person and work of Jesus. Right? In Jesus, we have a greater Jephthah. Jephthah was um, the type of king who would give up their only child so he could gain. Right? Jesus, the king of kings, gave his own life for people like us who still try to pull one over him in order that we might gain. Right? Again, in Jesus, we have a greater Jephthah. Jephthah's vow to God is that his will alone be done. And yet Jesus' vow to God in the moment of the greatest suffering the world has ever known says, not my will, but yours be done. He is so committed to the task of saving us, even at his expense. Again, in Jesus, we have a greater Jephthah. God relented and sent Israel a gang leader to bring at best a marred and conditional salvation. For us, God sent his son who entered time and space joyfully to die for his people on the cross to completely, unconditionally, and utterly save them. We've received a far, far greater kindness. And if you're here today and you have not received this, um, if you don't trust in this great news, we'd love um, to journey with you, to answer any questions you've got. Come and chat with me. Come and chat to the person who brought you. Um, it's wonderful that you're here. But at the same time, if you trust Jesus, if you receive this kindness, if you continue to pull one over on God, what does that say about ourselves? To borrow the words of the Apostle Paul, it says that we are showing contempt to God for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience with us. It captures it well, doesn't it? To pull one over on God after receiving such extravagant kindness is really just showing contempt to him. If we've truly received every spiritual blessing in Christ, Paul writes elsewhere, why do we continue to try and pull things over him? To close, if this describes you, and you'll know if it's you, can I urge you to respond by what Paul says is the intention behind God's, repent, uh, God's kindness there? Right? God's kindness is intended to do what? To lead you to repentance. And so would you repent? And would you not delay in repenting? In the quietness of your hearts, would you say sorry to him today?
If that's you, um, why don't you pray with me as I close? Lord Jesus, I am sorry that while you are Lord of my life, I try to pull things over on you regularly. I'm sorry for wanting your benefits, yet not wanting you sometimes. I'm sorry for showing contempt to the riches of your kindness, forbearance, and patience. Help me by your spirit to build my life upon you and your love for me, because it's the only foundation that's truly firm. In your name I pray. Amen.